We are just going to read, it's in your booklets, but if you have your Bible, feel free. We're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 to 28. But in fact, Christ has been risen from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that this does not include the one who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him, so that God may be all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Andy. Hello, everyone. What a scripture. Okay, so today's message is somewhat of an appropriate follow-on from um, the Great Easter message we had last fortnight from Michaela. Um, And I'm going to take you on what has been a bit of a personal discovery for myself over the last few years on a topic that has become a real central area um, and foundation for where I find hope, Um, but also where I find purpose in how I try and live my everyday life. So the topic I'm talking about is resurrection. And uh, while the significance and meaning of resurrection of Jesus um, is often talked about at Easter, it isn't always clear what this means for our everyday life. So my hope for today is that you would be encouraged in your walk, ignited in your faith, spurred on uh, to really let resurrection life give you hope, in what is to come, but in also the now, the present, um, and how you approach your everyday life. So, recently Ellen and I have been watching this show called Mortimer and White House Gone Fishing. Has anyone seen it? (laughs) One person has seen it. Um, Okay, for those of you who haven't seen the show, which is basically all of you, um, it's, it's about, it's just these two old guys, it's real life, it's not like a, it's not a fiction, but it's two, two guys, Bob Mortimer and Paul Whitehouse, and they're these old British comedians, um, and they've been mates since they were young. So basically they, um, the premise is they both recently had quite serious heart surgery, and so that kind of rebonded them back together, and now they just go around the UK fishing and just having chats and banter. And that's literally the whole show. Um, It's very wholesome. (laughs) But in one episode, they're fishing away um, and they're chatting as as you do when you fish. Um, And Bob asks Paul, do you think you'll go to heaven or hell when you die? To which Paul replies, what? One of those two made up places. To which Bob jokingly replies, well, you're definitely going to hell then. Now, (laughs) I'm by no means an expert in eschatology or the study of the last things um, or anything like that. 
And there are plenty of good books out there that we can recommend if you want to know more. But, but what Paul Whitehouse's um, response here brings up is a great point um, about the different beliefs that people have around life after death. You know, there's questions like, do we float up to the clouds when we die? Do we have souls that are separate, that separate from our bodies and go to spend eternity in heaven or hell? Do our lives on earth really matter if, uh, if we're just going to spend eternity in paradise? And some of these are common questions that people and even a lot of Christians ask. But unfortunately for many, the beliefs around life and death have become a bit muddled with philosophies drawn from Plato and other belief systems rather than what the Bible actually says. So, you might ask, what does the Bible actually say? And what, where does the resurrection fit into it all? Well, that brings us back to my favourite Christian holiday, Easter. Um, not just for the chocolates, but, um, yeah, some people prefer Christmas over Easter as a holiday, but, but to give you a bit of context, if you read the New Testament... Um, and you take, you take out all the Christmas stories, um, as wonderful as they are, and you actually, just, um, you, you actually just lose a couple of chapters in Matthew, a couple of chapters in Luke, um, and not much else in the New Testament really hinges on that. Um, I think Paul mentions the birth of Jesus in one line in Galatians. Um, but imagine if you took Easter and the resurrection out of the New Testament, and there isn't really much of a story left. All you have is another sad attempt of a first century Jewish revolution and a very interesting character in the middle. But without Easter, the Bible and the entire Christian faith for that matter doesn't really mean all the things we say it means. For the earliest Christians, it wasn't something that they talked about just once a year. It was actually something they talked about every time they gathered. Um, and as biblical professor Tim Mackey puts it, one of Joel's favourites, the resurrection of Jesus was such a category-shattering experience for the earliest followers of Jesus that you find profound reflections on it in every single writing in the New Testament. And of course, with that, you have the many references and the fulfilment of the Old Testament. So why was it considered so category-shattering? Unfortunately, many people, especially in our Western world, have gotten, this bit of, gotten a little bit muddled up about this, myself in the past included. And we've often imagined that resurrection is just a fancy way of saying, uh, you'll go to heaven when you die. Or in other words, what happens immediately after you die. But for first century Jews and, and for the early Christians, resurrection had a very clear meaning. It meant that after you die, there's a period of uh, being dead, where your body has died and is corrupting, and then God gives you a new or a renewed body. The resurrection is therefore not life after death, but it's actually the next stage beyond. Or as um, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright likes to put it, it's life after life after death. And I know this can be a lot to think about, but we do need to think about it. Because there are many devout Christians who say they believe in the resurrection of the body, but they haven't actually thought about what it's all about. Like I said, I was in that exact same boat a few years ago. So when the early Christians said 
Jesus was raised from the dead. They didn't mean his body lies there decaying in a grave and then his ghost goes marching on or something like that. No, they were talking about him being bodily alive after a period of being dead. So resurrection is not the same thing as simply dying and then going somewhere else. It's actually the overcoming of the conquest of death. Wow. Where death is the... Uh, this is even better. Where, where death is the denial of God's good and created order, resurrection is the reaffirmation of the goodness of God's created order. I'll say that again. Where death is the denial of God's good and created order, resurrection is the reaffirmation of the goodness of God's created order. So... Earlier on, we just read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, at the end of that chapter, Paul puts it really beautifully um, in verse 53. He says, uh, he quotes Hosea, um, and he says, For this perishable body must put on imperishability, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability, and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. So, death is defeated. Now, I'm aware at this point, I'm opening a can of worms a bit, because there's just so much you could go, you could talk about with this, um, but I have to move on, even though they're such tasty good worms. Um, so coming back to this category-shattering experience that the disciples, was, well, the disciples had, even though Jesus talked about it over and over again, about his resurrection, um, it still came as a surprise to some of the disciples. Like Michaela was talking about last fortnight, you had the two disciples on their way to Emmaus, and they had a whole conversation and a, and a whole uh, walk with him without realizing it was him. You had Thomas, who Jesus had to literally invite to touch his body to believe it was him. So many of Jesus' followers were expecting him to uh, bring about the kingdom of God by overthrowing the worldly kingdoms uh, of the time. Or um, he, they were expecting him to redeem the Jews by destroying the Romans. Um, but then he died, and all apparent hope was lost. But then he resurrected, defeating death itself and launching his new kingdom as a new creation. But we'll come back to that. So the way it's explained in the Gospels is as though to say, we know this is weird. We didn't expect this to happen. It's very, very strange. It's not just, oh yeah, Jesus resurrected, all good. No, Jesus has gone into previously uncharted territory. He hasn't come back as a ghost. He hasn't just come back into the present life again to die again. This isn't reincarnation. He has gone into a physical immortality. 
And this is where some of our Western philosophies fall apart a bit. We think of immortality as uh, our body dies and then our soul goes on, goes on to live forever, um, which I'm sorry to tell you derives mostly from ancient Greek philosophies like Plato. Um, but what the Bible shows us is that this is a bodily immortality, and that body is just a little bit different. Hence, the disciples were a little puzzled. But there's a great line in John 21 where he says, None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. But Michael, you might say, <laughs> What about us when we die? Where are we resurrecting to? What about when the Bible talks about heaven? Well, rather than cracking open another tasty can of worms and chucking it on you, um, I've got a very well done short video um, done by the Bible Project which explains what the Bible says about heaven and earth. Let's check it out. The ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well over here, there's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting, is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart, and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning, where heaven and earth are completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity well together, perfectly no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out, and we wanted to create the world perfect. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a clear distinction. So you said that these spaces can overlap, though. So Explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. 
What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the, the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reunited. Right, so we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now this word dwelling is really curious. Literally it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth, just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talking about it in the temple, he's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited by animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space? to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. So, wasn't that great? So it's in this final stage when Jesus returns, um, where those who are in Christ will also be resurrected. And all that is evil will finally be redeemed and made good, and his new creation kingdom will be fulfilled. But Michael, you might ask, <laughs> what does this have to do with my life now? Well, thanks for asking. Um, there's something very significant about the resurrection, what it means for our life right now, um, and that's one of the most amazing parts of it all. The bodily resurrection, um, it does not leave us saying, so that's all good. We shall go in the end to join Jesus in a non-bodily platonic heaven. Um, but instead, you could think of it this way. 
And this is where we come back to that scripture at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. Since the person you are and the world God has made will be gloriously reaffirmed in God's eventual future, you must be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the Lord's work, because you know that, the Lord, that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. So belief in the bodily resurrection includes the belief that what is done in the present, in the body, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will be reaffirmed in the eventual future. In other words, heaven and hell are not what the whole game is about. And this is one of the central surprises of the Christian hope. What happens to me after death is not the major central framing question that unfortunately some theological traditions have supposed it to be. The New Testament, true to its Old Testament roots, regularly insists that the major central framing question is that of God's purpose and rescue and recreation for the whole world and the whole cosmos for that matter. Our destiny as individual human beings must be understood within that context, not simply in the sense that we're just uh, part of a much larger picture, but in the sense that we are part of the whole point of being saved in the present uh, so that we can play a vital role. So Paul even speaks of this role in the shocking terms of being uh, fellow workers with God. Imagine that. Within the larger picture and purpose. So the power of the gospel lies not just in the offer of a new spirituality or a religious experience, um, certainly not in the threat of being left behind. Anyone remember that awful film? Nor the threat of hellfire, which can be removed if only the hearer ticks a box or says this prayer or raises their hand or whatever. No, the good news of the gospel in the powerful announce, uh, sorry, is the powerful announcement that God is God, that Jesus is Lord, that the powers of evil have been defeated, that in Jesus' resurrection, God's new world has begun. And this is the surprising hope of the gospel. On the one hand, you have the hope of life after life after death, but also as a direct result of that, you have hope for life before death, or our life now. Um, and and N.T. Wright puts it this way, um, and at this point, where believing in the resurrection of Jesus suddenly ceases to be a matter of inquiring about an odd event in the first century and becomes a matter of rediscovering hope in the 21st century. Hope is what you get when you suddenly realize that a different worldview is possible. A worldview in which the rich, the powerful, and the unscrupulous, the unscrupulous, it means people without morals, do not, after all, have the last word. The same worldview shift which is demanded by the resurrection of Jesus is the shift that will enable us to transform the world. That's from a book called Surprised by Hope. Um, to put it at its most basic, the resurrection of Jesus offers itself not as a very odd event in the world as it is, but as the prototypical 
and foundational event within the world it has begun to be. It's not an absurd event uh, with the, within the old world, but a symbol and a starting point of the new world. The claim advanced in Christianity is of that magnitude, that with Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, there is not simply a new religious possibility, not simply a new ethic or a new way of salvation, but a new creation where Jesus is Lord now. But how can the church announce that God is God, that Jesus is Lord, that the powers of evil and corruption and death itself have been defeated and that God's new world has begun? Look at the world right now. Doesn't it seem a bit laughable? Well, it would be if it wasn't happening. But as you, the church, you and I, um, as the church is at work, if it's actively involved in seeking justice in the world, both globally and locally, if it's cheerfully celebrating God's good creation and its rescue from corrupt, corruption in art and in music, um, if the church's own internal life gives every sign that the new creation is actually happening, uh, generating a new type of community, then suddenly the announcement that Jesus is Lord makes a lot of sense. Now, there's so much more we could talk about here. Um, but if you want to know more, I would recommend reading that book that I quoted, um, uh, Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright. Um, you know, we could talk about the significance of Jesus' ascension, and what that means for the church. We could explore justice, beauty, evangelism, and what that really looks like. The list goes on, but maybe another time. Um, instead, um, we're going to head into a time of communion. Um, and so it would be great for us to, in this time, reflect on the alive Jesus, who opens up a living hope through his resurrection from the dead, that he has the capacity to make us into new and different kinds of humans. Thank you.